This is day 212 of our daily Bible reading. We will be completing Romans chapters 6 through 10. Lord God, we are so blessed by what you have done. As we go into Romans today, we are going to discuss your righteousness and what lengths you went through to bring us into your kingdom. Something we did not deserve, something you did not need, but it's something you desired to do. We thank you for loving us in such a remarkable way. And so profound is this gospel, Lord, that the world must hear about it. May we put urgency into it, and may we put more importance into it in our daily lives. Please bless the reading of your word. Allow your Holy Spirit to anoint their words on the paper today. In Jesus' name, amen. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin, Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God, in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts, and do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you. For you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death, or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, 
So now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification, and the outcome, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Or do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives? For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning her husband. So then, if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the Spirit, and not in oldness of the letter. What shall we say, then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin became alive, and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin, in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good, so that through the commandment, sin would be utterly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am a flesh, sold into bondage to sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. 
So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells with me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. Wretched man that I am! Who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace, because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brethren, we are under obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. 
and if children, heirs also, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption, into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own Son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Just as it is written, For your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, 
nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I am telling you the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belong the adoption as sons, and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises, whose are the fathers, and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also. When she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac, for though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, The older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I raised you up, to demonstrate my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, Why did you make me like this? Will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom he also has called, 
not only among the Jews, but also from among the Gentiles. As he says also in Hosea, I will call those who were not my people, my people, and her who was not beloved, beloved. And it shall be in the place where it is said to them, You are not my people. There they shall be called sons of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. For the Lord will execute his word on the earth thoroughly and quickly. And just as Isaiah foretold, unless the Lord of Sabaoth had left to us a posterity, we would have become like Sodom, and we would have resembled Gomorrah. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith? But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, just as it was written. Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they do not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on law shall live by that righteousness. But the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is, to bring Christ down. Or, who will ascend into the abyss? That is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is, the word of faith which we are preaching. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, Whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew or Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call for him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, 
How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. However, they do not all heed the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. But I say, surely they have never heard, have they? Indeed they have. Their voice has gone out into all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. But I say, surely Israel did not know, did they? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation. By a nation without understanding will I anger you. And Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. But as for Israel, he says, All the day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. Man, that was so fun, right? Praise God for what he has shown us today. Let's examine at least as much as we can just the core issues that are mentioned here. There's so much theology, I, I cannot do it all. But let me at least point you in the right direction for a few things. So beginning in chapter 6, he asks a very good question. If we are under the law of grace now, we are no longer under the law of Moses, but we are under the law of grace, and we want grace to increase in us, should we just sin? Should we have a license to sin? The answer is no. We do not have a license to sin. We are free from the law, and if we are indeed saved, we cannot lose our salvation no matter how much we sin, right? But that doesn't give us the excuse to be able to sin, or it's never going to be okay in God's sight. So why would you want to purposely disobey God? And what he's trying to get at as well is that if you think sin is okay and you feel no remorse over it, then there's a strong possibility you are not saved. So that really is an evidence of your salvation. If you feel the guilt and the heaviness of sin in your life. And if you have been saved since a little bit of an older age, you probably understand how it feels to where the world is not quite the same as it used to be. Things just don't feel the same way like they used to. The things which we enjoyed in our sin just don't appeal to us as much as they used to because we do not belong to that world any longer. According to Paul, we have been buried in Christ through his death on the cross. And by us accepting Christ and being regenerated by the Holy Spirit, our old self has died. That person is no longer there. But instead, now we are raised from the dead with our Lord Jesus into a new creature. He's going to say that somewhere else, but... We are in Christ, and if we are in Christ, we are a new creature. We still have our old sin nature attached to us, and we still retain our personality and our memories from before our salvation experience. 
But otherwise, we are a completely different creature. And it's very hard to describe this to somebody who is not saved. But the best way you can show is how different you are from the world around you. You must show like you are distinct and like you are different because you are no longer a part of this world of sin. Will you sin again? Yes. But you will not revel in it. You will always come back to the Lord because you know deep in your heart that what you're doing is wrong and God will discipline you accordingly. Now here's an important verse, verse 10. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. Somehow there are some groups that overlook this statement. The Catholics are one, and a couple of the more extreme Protestant groups, like the High Episcopals, some Lutheran groups, where they're very Catholic-ish in the way they practice things. But this sacrifice on the cross was a one-time event. There's not that understanding where, since God is outside of space and time, then we have to continue the sacrifice. That is absolutely absurd, and it is heresy. This says clearly that the death that he died, he died once in a real point of time, and it affected all of sin, past, present, and future. He never has to die again. And we never have to die again. Our bodies may perish for a while, but we will live forever with him. Praise be to God for that, right? We don't deserve this, but this is what we have. So I think it would be appropriate that the least we could do is to obey God's commandments, right? That's the very least. And one of those things is to not let sin reign in our bodies so that we obey the primal lusts. We are not animals. We do not have any excuse to revel in sin. We are not dogs that return to their vomit. We are not pigs that just cannot help themselves but just be pigs. We are not run by instinct this way. We are not animals. We are made in the image of God, and when you sin, it is a completely conscious decision. You can't say somebody else made you sin. You can't even say the devil made me do it because the devil doesn't make you sin. He makes it very attractive, but he doesn't make you do it. He gives you the gun, but he doesn't pull the trigger. You pull the trigger. You are personally held responsible and accountable for your own sin. So that's why he urges us, especially in verse 14, you shall not let Sin be master over you. Do not let it rule in your body, because you are no longer under the law, but you are under grace. You are not to conform to the pattern of the old world that you came from, because you don't belong to it anymore. So then Paul asks the question again, should we sin because we are allowed to? We're not under the law anymore, so that does that mean we can sin freely? Absolutely not. Then he goes into the topic of sanctification, and this is a very important concept that we need to keep in mind. Sanctification, put simply, is the process of being made holy. Or like we saw in here, that we're going to be conformed 
into the image of his Son. God's purpose for you after salvation is for you to be more like Jesus Christ every day, from that point on and moving forward. There should be growth. There should be maturity. There should be attempts to want to better yourself. If you put no effort into your spiritual journey and you completely disregard the things of God, you will not grow. That's why it's so unfortunate that we have people in our church today who have been in church for 50 plus years. They're 80 years old, and yet they have the spiritual maturity of a child because they have done nothing worthwhile with their salvation. Those people exist, unfortunately, and God has challenged us to be better than that. He's given us a purpose, and we need to be obedient to that purpose. Because why? It says here that we are no longer slaves to sin, but we are now slaves to Jesus Christ. He purchased us by his blood on the cross. Therefore, he is our master, and we do what he says. And like back here, they understood what this meant to the Romans, because slavery was a practice back then. They had slaves that were conquered from other territories, yes, but they also had slaves that purposely entered into that profession in order to make money, in order to pay off debt, etc. And at that point on, you became like property to that person. And so if they told you to do something, you better do it. And so you didn't have the option to have your own will or to choose what to do and what not to do. If your master said to do it, you better do it, because that's what you're there for. The same thing really does apply to us as well. God tells us to do things all the time in his word, and he expects us to obey it. And it should not even be an option. We shouldn't even give it a second thought. We should just act in obedience. That's what he wants from us. You want to revel in your sin? The wages of sin is death. But if you want life, you have to obey Jesus Christ, because the free gift of God is in Jesus Christ our Lord. That's eternal life. Chapter 7 focuses mostly on, are we under the law? And so he, the short answer is, no, we are no longer under the law. But he explains why. So he uses a marriage covenant as an example. So if you're married to somebody, you are under an oath. You're under a contract, a covenant. And that lasts until somebody annuls it, whether it is through divorce or somebody dies. And in God's economy, divorce should never happen. So that's why he doesn't even give it as an option here. So in his eyes, if you marry someone, it's for life until that person dies. And then if they were to go and remarry, it would not be sin. It would not be adultery against the first husband because that person died. So the wife is now free from the original marriage contract that she had with her first husband. So if she seeks another man, it's not going to be a big deal because she is now a single woman, not bound to an oath. So that's why she wouldn't be called an adulteress if she were to be interested in another man. But if that man is alive and she's looking at other guys, then absolutely that would be adultery because that would be 
in violation to the covenant that she has with her current husband. So the same thing happens to us with the law. In our unsaved state, we were bound to the law, and those were the guidelines that Jesus would judge us on. But since he's redeemed us from it, the law no longer applies to us. So then he asks the question, why do we even need the law then? And if it was for the unsafe people, and it caused us to sin, then is the law evil? Absolutely not. Why not? Because the law came from God, and there is no evil in him. God does not create bad ideas. And so the law has a purpose. And why do we have the law? It says here in verse 7, On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. So that is what the law is for. The law is the knowledge of sin. To know what is right and to know what is wrong. This is what God likes. We do those things. This is what God hates. We don't do those things. You do the thing he doesn't like, there will be consequences, so on and so forth. So, yes, the law is necessary because it is a means that God uses to show us what his expectations are, as well as the difference between right and wrong. Is the law evil? No, absolutely not. So then we have to ask, is the law a cause for death? The answer is no. It's not us that's the problem. It's the sin that's within us. And then he goes into something I think we can all relate with. And I read this every time, and I totally feel what he's feeling. Don't you feel like he does? What I am doing, I do not understand, for I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing that I hate. Don't we all get to that point where we sin, and we know we're doing it, and we know it's wrong, and you do it anyway, and then you feel such guilt when you're done? And that could be anything, right? That could be lying, that could be shoplifting, that could be porn, that can be overeating. I mean, there's a number of things it could be. But again, it is a very real situation that we're in, because we are a redeemed soul inside of a fleshly, sinful body. There's going to be a war between our body and our mind, constantly, until we die. The flesh wants to do what it wants, and that's all the sinful, pleasurable stuff that's in the world. But the mind that is saved wants to do the things of God, wants to focus on Him, wants to pray, wants to dedicate time to Him, wants to grow in His knowledge. But yet we are at war with ourselves, And it seems so terrible, right? Because we try to control ourselves and we can't always do it. And then you see Paul reach that climax with that wretched man that I am. I think we can all relate to that statement. Wretched man that I am. I feel it all the time. Wretched man that I am. Who will set me free from the body of this death. Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. He has redeemed us from it. We were dominated by our body, but now we are able to put sin to death. 
we have the authority and the power now from God to kill the sin in our lives. Can it be done? Yes, it's not always easy, but it can be done. And then we reach the greatest chapter in the greatest book of the Bible, according to most scholars. Chapter 8. There is so much here, but just to scratch the surface a little bit. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? There is nothing we are guilty of any longer. There is no more judgment appointed to us. We will still have to stand before God and make an account for ourselves, but God will no longer condemn us. We are no longer under condemnation because of what Christ did for us on the cross. So now we have an obligation to walk according to the Spirit. And that's part of where you see the fruits come in. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. And if you are of the flesh, you will do the things of the flesh. And if you are of the Spirit, you will do the things that are of the Spirit. Because we put our mind to the things that are temporal, in the physical, those things will not satisfy. They won't give you peace. They won't give you life. They'll give you some amusement. They'll give you pain. They'll give you suffering. They'll give you drama. They'll give you pleasure. But they won't give you life. They won't give you peace. That only comes through God. Verse 10 says that if Christ is in you, Though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. It's not our righteousness. Let's be clear about that. Our righteousness is nothing. We don't have any. Our righteousness is only because Christ gave it to us. Christ is in us, therefore we share his righteousness. That is the only thing that is the ticket to being in God's direct presence. Jesus had to do that for us. We could not find our way to God no matter how hard we tried. Even with the perfect roadmap, you would not be able to find God on your own. It requires divine intervention. So not only are we purchased from the world and Satan into a world of light, but we are also slaves. But not only just slaves, but we are highly exalted slaves to the point of heirship. We are heirs. We have become sons and daughters of the Lord God. We have received the spirit of adoption. We are part of God's family now. Abba, roughly meaning daddy, where we can approach God's throne and call him daddy, that intimate address. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. The Spirit will confirm it in you. Have you ever felt like, I don't know if I'm saved or not? The Holy Spirit will, if you ask him. If you indeed have him. We will be heirs to the kingdom of God. There will be exalted glories for us to experience. We will be almost as if brother and sister with Jesus Christ in the way that this dynamic works. Like it says here in verse 17, And if children, heirs also, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ. He is still much higher than we are, but we share of his heirship. And if we indeed suffer with him, 
we will be glorified with him. That is part of the process. There's a progression that you can see throughout the rest of chapter 8. So it starts with the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit changes you from within. And then, through faith, we accept Christ. And then we have the next portion, which is justification. The price on our head has been paid, and God's wrath is satisfied in us. And once that's done, then we will be glorified. It hasn't happened yet, but when we die, we go meet him in the air, we will be glorified just like he was. We will have a glorified state or eternal happiness. So in other words, if that's what we have to look forward to, verse 18 makes a lot of sense. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. This is just one stepping stone on the journey to eternity. These small issues that we deal with now are nothing compared to what's waiting for us at the end. And if we understood that at a superficial level, that would change our entire outlook on why we do things. There is so much glory and honor waiting for us on the other side. And God has told us to act now so that we will store up treasures in heaven. We will have suffering. We will have misery. But we will also have good things, too. But it's all for God's glory. It's all for His being glorified. Not us being glorified, but Him but Him being glorified. And God gave us the Holy Spirit because He doesn't want to abandon us. He knows that we are easily led astray, and we don't know how to ask God for what we need. Thank God we have the Holy Spirit, who prays for us according to this. He intercedes for us with Jesus and with the Father. He prays in groanings too deep for words. Because we sometimes have those in our lives too. We just groan and we have suffering so great, we don't even know what to say. But the Holy Spirit understands and he interprets that, translates it to the Father and interprets it for him what our needs are. And he hears us. But he, the things that we deal with, the struggles and the sufferings, are for a purpose. It says that he causes all things to be for our good. How can things that are good for me hurt so bad? Well, sometimes you have to learn in order to grow. Sometimes you have to experience something to, in order to be made stronger. These things happen in our lives because it is for our good. And then he addresses those that he foreknew, people that he knew before they were even created. And then he also predestined us. He chose who was going to be saved from before the world was created. And those people, like I was telling you, are going to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that we will be like him. Those he predestined, he also called. He drew you to salvation. And then he called you, and you're justified through Jesus Christ's death on the cross. And then now you're going to be glorified because of his resurrection. So what do we have to worry about? God is for us. No one can be against us. What do we have to lose? 
What do we have to worry about? Absolutely nothing. There's nothing that's going to separate us from God at this point. Nothing is stronger than God, and nothing's going to stop him. And that's what he finishes chapter 8 with, such strong, profound words. Chapter 9 focuses on, mostly, the sovereignty of God. And he makes a distinction between the physical descendants of Abraham and the spiritual descendants of Abraham, which we are a part of. That's why Gentiles can be children of God, because it is not through genetics. It is through the Spirit. God chose who is going to be saved, and God chose who his children are going to be. We may not understand why. It may not make sense to us, but that's the truth. And Paul uses illustrations from the Old Testament to explain this point, especially when it refers to why before Jacob and Esau were even born, it said that the younger was going to serve the older, and that he loved Jacob, but he hated Esau. It wasn't anything they did. They weren't even born yet. But God chose beforehand. That's how it was going to take place and who was going to get what. God decided that. Does he have the right to do that? Absolutely he does, and we'll get to that in a second. Then he moves to the account of Moses confronting Pharaoh, and how sometimes in the Old Testament it would say that Pharaoh hardened his heart, but then there were times that said that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. He can do that? Absolutely he can. He's sovereign. That means there's nothing that he cannot control. Does that mean he can control me? Yeah. Does that mean he could override me at any time? He probably does, and you don't even realize it. Or you know exactly when he's done it. He controls everything. He has mercy on who he wants to have mercy. He hardens whom he wants to harden. He decides all of this. We have no right to say anything about it. Who are we to question God? If God created us, he is infinitely greater than us. And he uses the example of a potter with some clay. Imagine a potter at a pottery wheel. It's spinning around and he's putting the clay on it and then he's lifting it up and shaping it however he wants. What if the clay just started talking saying, hey, why are you making me like this? Hey, I, wouldn't, I don't want to look like this. I want to be looking like something else. Do you see how this sounds a lot like the transgender movement? I'm just throwing that out there, that it is a complete defiance of God's design. But who's to say that the potter can't use the same clay to make a fancy vase, and then another making a drinking cup? Or even worse, making a latrine bucket? Why can't he make anything he wants with that piece of clay? Because he can he can, and no one's going to stop him. The clay is not going to stop him. So who are we as human beings being as weak as clay in comparison to him? Who are we to question God? Who are we to answer back to God, why did you make me like this? Why are you doing this? We have no right to question God. It is never okay to challenge God in the decisions he's made. It's never correct to question God in any decision he's ever made, whether for you or in the world. God is sovereign. You have no right to tell him what to do. Your role is to simply obey him and to be grateful for what he's given you. 
So if Israel is God's chosen people, why aren't they all saved? Because there's one thing that they lack. They lack faith. Most often, and we still have it today, the legalistic stuff where people understood things literally when it should be figuratively, or they think it is by merit that we are saved. That is through works instead of grace and faith alone, in Christ alone. But that's unfortunately what a lot of the world thinks. That's what the world religions base their stuff off of. What humanity has to do to appease an angry God, because that God is always out to get them, and they need to be calmed, and they have to do ridiculous things to calm him. We don't have to do that with God. And then the rest of chapter 10 is discussing what is necessary to be saved. And he lays it out very clearly what's expected here. It's very simple. You confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and then you believe in your heart that he was raised from the dead and you will be saved. It's really that simple. But there's a lot to it in there. To acknowledge Jesus as Lord, listen to what it said. It didn't say to acknowledge Jesus. Because the world acknowledges Jesus. The name Jesus is well known. And there are many people that are okay with confessing Jesus. But there's a difference between that and confessing Jesus as your Lord, meaning your master, that you are his slave. There's a big difference. Not only in words, but in deed. Are you living and acting in such a way that you acknowledge Jesus Christ is Lord? He is your Savior, but he is also your Lord, and you can't have one without the other unless you want an incomplete, incorrect Jesus. If you only have him as Savior but not your Lord, he is not the Jesus of the Bible. If you have him as your Lord but not your Savior, he is not the Jesus of the Bible. He is both, and he has to be both because that's exactly how it's meant to be. He is your Lord, and he is your Savior. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You won't do that on your own. It takes an act of submission, of surrender, in order to call out for God. It requires sacrificing your own ego, and some people are not willing to give that up because they are okay with being their own God. And then the very last part of chapter 10 is a huge challenge to us today. How are people going to get saved unless the gospel is presented to them? That is probably why many people today still are not saved, because we have Christians living in the world today that are not willing to profess Christ in public. They try to live in a most moral, pious way as possible. They hang out at church with other Christians. But outside of those walls, they don't act like Christians. Or they don't talk about their beliefs and their testimony with people. I am saying this to you as someone guilty of it too. I could do a lot better in my witnessing in the workplace. And I have failed in that way. I can't thwart God's will. He's ultimately going to do what he wants. But he wants us to be obedient, willing slaves. The idea of slavery just has a lot of red flags right now, but it's not that kind of slavery. Not the oppressive, wrong slavery that occurred in the founding of this country. 
But this is a different kind of slavery. This is a more wholesome slavery. One that was between two willing parties. I will submit to you for a wage. That slavery is acceptable. And that's the slavery we're talking about here. So you need to be thinking about, as we conclude for today, how can you share the gospel more in the days to come? This world needs it so desperately, and we need to be stepping up our game, and we need to share the gospel like we're supposed to. And with that, that's all I have for today. Thank you for listening. I'm Ryan, and we'll see you next time. Take care, and God bless you.